Hello, and welcome to Tailwinds, the Air and Space Operations Review Podcast. I'm Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow, and I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Fry. Dr. Fry recently retired as an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel after 20 years of service. His final assignment was as an Assistant Professor of Physics at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he was a member of the Air Force Science and Technology 2030 Strategy Implementation Team. He is currently conducting space analysis and research. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Oh, thanks for having me, Laura. I'm really excited to be here. That's wonderful. We're excited to have you. So as we start, um, please tell us a little about your background and your interest in the subject matter. So I was uh, commissioned in December of 2001, which was a, a really fun time to join the military. Um, and I just retired this past March. So I've had uh, 20 years um, in my entire career. I was a physicist, so a subset of scientists. Um, but actually, my first assignment was as an aircraft maintenance officer. So before I actually did any physics in the Air Force, I did uh, two years in aircraft maintenance. Also had a couple of deployments. So the first one was to Iraq. Uh, 2005, 2006 for six months, and then another one to Afghanistan in 2007, 2008. Um, And both of those deployments were predominantly with army units. Um, So I kind of worked with quite a bit of the army. And what I found was even though the vast majority of the rest of my career was in like traditional physicist assignments, either teaching or research or, or getting PhD, I found that the way I approached my physicist assignments were influenced quite a bit by my experiences under deployments and aircraft maintenance um, and sort of lessons I learned from there and kind of took forward. So especially the, the Afghanistan tour, I think in my second article, I talk about uh, battalion U, uh, electronic warfare officers. Um, and quite a bit of that is, is actually like my firsthand experiences there, kind of things I did or, or things I saw uh, other other EWOs do. And so it had like an enormous impact. And so in, I think it was about April, 2019, when the chief scientist office actually published that S&T 2030 strategy, I read through it and quite a bit of what their kind of goals and the way they were trying to develop um, science and technology in the Air Force really resonated with me and kind of things that I'd either thought about or wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to have like the opportunity to actually work on one of the initiatives. So um, sort of knew somebody who knew somebody and then it just, you know, happened into it. And so when the opportunity came by, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll be happy to work on it. And uh, these two articles basically grew out of that work and, and the discussions that kind of went on with uh, with that team. That's wonderful. They're, they're really insightful. I've and enjoyed sort of putting them, having them run closely and, and uh, get them out there and get the journal. So let's go right into it then. And in your first of the two, Mobilizing Uniform Scientists and Engineers, published in our fall 2021 issue of Air and Space Power Journal, which has since been renamed Air and Space Operations Review, you introduced the readers to the Uniform Scientists and Engineers career field. Can you give us some more background on this? Yeah. So the career fields themselves are one of the kind of older non-rated career fields. So even before there actually was an Air Force, General Hap Arnold sort of saw that uh, the Air Force was going to be really dependent on technology. And so there was some form of scientists and engineers just even even before there was an actual Air Force. And so we've kind of, that career field has been there uh, from the beginning. And 
in sort of a big picture, scientists, engineers, and uh, another career field called acquisition managers uh, that tend to focus on program management. Those three career fields are, are responsible for bringing new technologies into the Air Force. Um, kind of the way the general approach is that acquisition managers uh, buy things, engineers build things, and scientists build understanding. And so it, that's kind of kind of our disciplines in a nutshell. If I'm just focusing on the actual scientists and engineers, there's a lot of technical specialties in the Air Force that take uh, STEM degrees, but they tend to just use the STEM degree as a, as a qualifying degree, and then you go on the career field. With scientists and engineers, it's actually used for admission into the career field itself. So to be a scientist, you have to have a science degree. Uh, to be an engineer, you have to have an engineering degree. And there's somewhat of an implicit expectation that as we progress through our careers, that we're going to just build on that that type of education. And so in comparison to other career fields, scientists and engineers have uh, tend to have more access to graduate degrees. I would like to see them have more, but we already kind of have a, a good chunk of the options. So I think about three quarters of scientists positions either require or desire some type of graduate degree. A quarter of engineers uh, are that desire require graduate degree. And so from a, a technical standpoint, uh, we tend to have a lot of technical background associated with the career fields. And then in addition to that, because we're all members of the military, uh, we, I say we, like I'm retired now, but they uh, have a, the traditional type of military expectation with them. So they have fitness standards, medical qualifications that they have to do to uh, maintain that they're worldwide deployable. They maintain security clearances, so at least a secret level, if not higher. And then just like everybody else in the military, we don't get furloughed during a government shutdown. We don't have to wait on a continued resolution to show up. And then the last little piece is that we're uh, officers. So with that comes that expectation and the training that we're going to do some type of leadership or have some kind of education or training in uh, just warfare and strategy. So that's there's kind of like those three little pieces. So technical, military aspect, and then a leadership piece. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a fantastic way to spend uh, 20 years in the service or more. <laughs> um, yeah. But in your articles, you talk about that there are actually some uh, some challenges related to this. And you specifically talk about ch uh, challenges raised by officers almost 80 years ago. I found that really fascinating, that little yeah. data point in the <laughs> 1940s. And those challenges exist today. What are those concerns in particular? And what is the current functional role of these officers today? Yes. In doing the research, I was actually surprised by that too. Like this is my gosh, this thing is what, 80 years old? This is 60 years old? Like, this is a, a common theme that keeps showing up. And to kind of understand the concerns, it's it's helpful to understand, like, why would somebody become a, a, a scientist or engineer in the military? Like, what, what desires brought them there? And so somebody decides to be a scientist and engineer because they have a passion for the subject. So we love doing science or engineering. And so that's why we studied it. We joined the military because we wanted to be part of military stuff and be involved in military operations. And then we became officers because we wanted to lead. And when it, when you look at the, the concerns that are keep being raised, it's basically conflicts with those desires and their ability to, to enable them. So 
being able to do science and engineering or be able to be connected to military operations or either have few leadership opportunities or poor technical leadership. Like even though they may be assigned to a unit with a technical mission, the commander of that particular unit may have no technical degree or not done anything technical in like 20 years. And so so basically everything kind of boiled down to you have this group of officers that have a very specialized expertise and they just want to be able to use it to its fullest potential. And over the course of, of 80 years, there's been some kind of what I call like legacy impediments, things that have, uh, these are sort of like institutional policies. A lot of them are just misunderstandings on or conflicts with sort of big air force desires versus how you actually develop scientists and engineers. So one of them is assuming scientists and engineers are just the exact same as civilians and using them interchangeably, which is sort of not the not always accurate. There's, there's an assumption that you can only do science and engineering in a lab, which is really narrowing on, on all the things that you can actually do. And then personnel development. There's Sometimes it's just a hesitation to be perceived as a specialist. So Air Force likes generalists because you can put them anywhere. But the way that manifests or way that looks as a scientist or engineer, it kind of looks differently. So even though sometimes we may specialize in something that doesn't mean we can't do anything else. And there's also this kind of like administrative impatience. Like it takes a long time to get a graduate degree. We don't want to waste, you know, set an officer aside for a while. So these are kind of the the legacy impediments that have sort of always been there, kind of been annoying uh, to a lot of scientists and engineers. But what really has kind of influenced the way scientists and engineers are used today was some called total system performance responsibility, which is like a kind of a tongue twister, but it was this post-Cold War policy. They were looking to correct efficiencies that they saw in the acquisition process. And so what they thought was, or what their assumption was, is that a lot of the government science and engineering experience was non-value added, and we'll just transfer a lot of it over to the contractor. And because of this, it sort of, it sort of instills this policy of uh, you presume that the solution to every problem is a contract, and you see this huge shift in technical skills to program management skills. And it basically kind of condensed how scientists and engineers use their technical skills as basically quality control for, for what technology that the Air Force purchases. Like, does this thing work? Yes or no. And rather than a huge array of of all the different things you can do with science and engineering. And as a consequence of that, you see a much greater decrease in the amount of technical skills, leadership opportunities. And so as we kind of come up to today, even though like the the officer end strength has gradually decreased since the end of the Cold War, scientists and engineers have decreased at a higher rate. In the meantime, acquisition managers have actually increased. And so even though there's this stated value among the Air Force that they value STEM and science and engineering and innovation. When you look at the commander positions that are available to scientists and engineers, it, like 89% of them are for acquisition manager coded. And in fact, when the, the Space Force was created, they didn't even include a scientist career field. The few scientists that could actually transfer could only transfer if they went into a different career field like acquisition management. That was kind of the main one. And so, yeah, so you see this kind of, in some ways, like a conflict between using technical skills and value the skills versus access or a, a an environment to use them. And kind of tying this back around, the, the articles were trying to kind of deconflict or address those concerns in a way that actually would benefit the Air Force rather than just going, we have to do this because it'll make them happy. 
Right. Uh, and, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. And so when you write in your first article, you write that connecting what combat forces need with what technology can provide has been an enduring problem. So you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but tell us more about how does better utilizing these officers' warfighting obligations and you you talk about creating, fielding, or adapting and employing technology. How does that address this? Clearly, it's a problem. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, you know, making scientists and engineers happy is, is a great objective. Um, it certainly helps with recruiting and attention. But ultimately, what I was trying to do is better the Air Force. And the objective is to create a technological advantage for the Air Force. And the way I wanted to do that was actually by playing to scientists and engineers strengths like what did they do really well or what are they what attributes do they have that may not be fully accessed and so yeah this disconnect between creating technology and getting it out has been there for for actually nearly a century so Winston Churchill referred to something called a hiatus between inventors and soldiers during World War one it, today it's it's given a very more ominous description is called the acquisition valley of death. Um, but it's this idea that you have technologies created on one hill on one side, you have operators and that use the technology in the other. And in between is this big valley where technologies kind of get thrown and then they just disappear. And so there's, there are a number of, of kind of initiatives that are trying to deal with this. A couple that come to mind, one is war tech. I, I think it's, they sort of select certain programs and they sort of shepherd them across I think another one is for some of the bigger programs, they'll have co-leads. So you have an operator and a technology expert, and they sort of share leadership responsibilities for a particular program. Another example I've seen is something called like a transition manager, which sounds like a, a traveling salesman, but he leaves the technology side, wanders over to the to the operator side and tries to sell his wares, like, please buy our technology. But it, like when you look at these initiatives, they're, they all pretty much still focus on creating experts on each side. So you have technology and you sit on the technology hill or you're an operator and you sit on the operator hill. And my idea with scientists and engineers is to put them right in the center. And so the place for scientists and engineers is in the valley of death. And so that's where they're, they, at least where I think they should live and thrive is in that kind of environment. So that ability to understand all the technical possibilities that that technology provides, but all the but also the operational realities that you're going to have to try to fit and solve, like what problems are out there, be able to link between those two. So they're meant to sit in the middle and then, you know, go back and forth really quickly. And so what I was thinking with this kind of setup is it takes advantage of the scientists, engineers, advanced degrees, their expertise in technology, but they don't have to sit only on the technology side. That's kind of where they're, where they're kind of set in place today is primarily on the technology side, but uh, there's a lot of people already there. And so by putting them in the, you know, in the valley of death, you can actually take advantage of their deployability, their fitness, the, their ability to actually go to operational environments. And so what I kind of envisioned was these scientists and engineers, like literally taking technology out of the lab and using it in real operations. So not just managing the transition, uh, but physically and literally taking it out and using it. This is something me and other science and engineers did when we were in Afghanistan, sort of using this raw technology that was either very new or nobody had ever tried, sort of doing, for lack of a better term, sort of doing combat tests and evaluation. And so if you want to know whether or not something works, that's pretty definitive. But this practice of 
uh, of a group of, or a specialty that actually takes this raw technology and uses it to see what works, what's needed is sort of very rare. It's not standard practice. And that's kind of what I was hoping scientists and engineers could kind of fill that niche is sit in between those and be able to go back and forth between technology and operations. And so getting back finally to your your question about creating and, and adapting. So when you what I hope is when you put scientists and engineers kind of in the center there between the two hills, uh, when you're trying to create new technologies, you have these scientists and then the military scientists and engineers that can actually assist creating better requirements. You know, what exactly do you need? What's just extraneous? They're closer to operations so they can actually see problems better. So some problems that say grunts have just gotten used to, they've learned to deal with um, that maybe aren't big enough to bubble up to a general officer to write a formal requirement. A scientist and engineer that's just right there could probably go, oh, well, you just do this thing. And they're going to create and solve the problem a lot faster at a much lower level. In terms of fielding, you can get technology out, I think, sooner. I think it uh, uses a description like raw technology. So things that maybe the technology itself works, but it's definitely not user-friendly. But as a scientist or engineer with a graduate degree, playing around with new stuff is it's kind of fun. It's in our wheelhouse. Like we get kicks out of this. And so sure, we'll, we'll go ahead and use it. That's fine. And so we, you know, the battalion EWOs, we, we did this occasionally, uh, which was really fun and exhilarating, but yeah, not standard practice. In terms of adapting, if we're in an operational environment, we can see adversary technology attempts. They may be trying to prototype their own things and we can kind of see those and understand how they work a little bit uh, better. And if we can't solve or create a counter on our own, then we can at least relate back like this is how it's working or this is how we think it works. And then basically feed really good data back to the actual technology hill so they can start working on it with the experts. And then finally, just the employing piece. So new technology is awesome, but if you don't use it correctly, sometimes it, it actually does more harm than good. And so by putting scientists, engineers closer to operations, when we have enough understanding of how this technology is works or what all it can do, we can help refine those employment things. Like, no, don't use it like this because it'll it'll never work or it's not appropriate for that environment. And again, tying this back to Afghanistan, we we were able to kind of give that kind of technical feedback. Like, yes, in the lab setting, like this is fantastic. I understand exactly why you put that there for where we're at doing convoys, that does not work. And be able to give that kind of specific feedback and that kind of motivation why something does or does not work is really helps kind of tie this all together to how you actually employ the technology. So a, a lot of these pieces to prepare scientists to, to fill this role in, in the Valley of Death are kind of already there, but they're, they're not necessarily all aligned. And there's, I would say there's probably kind of a, a lack of institutional awareness that, oh, you can actually put uniformed scientists and engineers here and it really kind of would excite and play to their strengths a lot better than just confining them on the, the technology hill. So, so to, so to that, um, structurally then, and you've sort of touched on this, but what some, you provided some structural recommendations for the air force or the department of the air force that they can better uh, align these officers to benefit the Air Force and uh, benefit the officer. I mean, they joined not just to be scientists, they joined to be leaders, they joined to serve their country, they joined to do those things. And, you know, um, I think Space Force is sort of on cutting edge of, of personnel changes as, as I read some of their implementing documents. So how does, how does the department make these, you know, institute these changes? 
Yeah. So the uh, yeah. So in some cases, the the fact that there are already a lot of pieces out there can be in some ways misleading. Like, oh, we've we've got stuff there. We're already we're almost all of the way there. But in some way, there's a there's a conceptual aspect to it. Is what do we expect, or what do we want scientists and engineers to do in comparison to to the other type of technical specialties? And then once you define that. In my case, I defined it as in the valley of death. Then, then you start to lead into okay, how do you develop them to fill that role? And what uh, kind of my approach to that, uh, or the way I saw forward for that, is basically more doing, less watching. So something uh, like there may be a reason that the Air Force doesn't want program managers to be in more of a, a doer role when they're managing contracts, but that doesn't really work for scientists and engineers in, in terms of how you build their build their skills. So it's something I learned when I was in aircraft maintenance is if you're actually trying to learn leadership, the best and sometimes the only way you learn leadership is by actually trying to do it in by leading people. So I might be given responsibility for a particular project, but the way I was actually learned leadership was when I actually had to, to lead people, even if it meant falling on my face doing it, it's still that sort of practical, that practical experience. So taking what I learned in, in ROTC and other leadership classes and actually trying to apply it. And the same thing kind of goes for science and engineering, both in terms of technical skills and their leadership skills. So you want scientists and engineers to kind of continually be working on and doing science and engineering. So first off, you don't want to make sure that their, their existing skills don't get stale. So just because you got a STEM degree two decades ago, science and engineering is always pushing forward. And so what you learned 20 years ago may not be accurate. So you want to stay current. And there's also a need to expand your expertise. So even though my particular expertise is in astrophysics, I've spent a lot of time studying physics. As I've progressed out from my PhD and started working on other problems, though, I've learned other bits of technical stuff. So I've learned a little bit of chemistry, I've learned a little bit of engineering. And so, yes, even though we may start off specialized, by working on more problems, we become more and more general. Um, as we try to deal with these kind of more complex problems. So it's sort of becoming more generalized is one of the benefits to be to continuing to, to work on those skills. Um, and then you also build a, a network of collaborators and other experts. Um, and this is where like the technical leadership piece kind of comes in where, where you start working on projects with, with other people, either as a team member or eventually leading different topics. So science and engineering is an inherently collaborative process. And so nobody knows everything. So you're almost always bouncing ideas or touching on different topics. So yeah, I may have learned a little bit of chemistry, but it's basically enough to go, enough to realize when I'm out of my depth in terms of chemistry, and then I'm going to go talk to a chemist and, and not make something silly mistake. It, and the reason I kind of hope or, or want to have scientists and engineers do that more practical kind of work is a lot of times contract arrangements, arrangements don't allow for a sufficient level of collaboration. Like there's kind of a a separation between you as a manager and the contractor. And that also limits how much leadership you can actually practice because of the, the contract arrangement is too, too rigid. And so I guess what my vision for scientists and engineers would be is that they're given problems to solve rather than solutions to execute. So rather than here's a contract, go management. Here's this thing. We have no idea what to do. Go give us an answer. And you'll probably get the scientist and engineer really excited about solving it. And they'll probably surprise you with what they come up with. And when you 
present problems that way, you're going to excite their creativity. They're going to start building their own collaborations, kind of building their own leadership. Um, and after career of this, they're going to have built bigger and bigger networks of collaborations, trying to solve more complex problems. And they may manage contracts in the process of this. But in the, that sense, they're using contracts. They're, they're managing a contract because it allows them to do more with their technical degree, not because, you know, regardless of their technical degree. And so hopefully they'll have at the end of the career, by the time they reach senior leadership, they'll have more robust technical skills. If we push them closer towards operations, they'll have a greater awareness of operational needs and they'll have this continually growing technical practice. So I, I guess in an ideal world, I, I hope that the scientists and engineers would get viewed similar to like Jimmy Doolittle or Lou Allen or, or John Boyd, where it, not like they're like pilots with a technical degree, but that they're technical experts that have a really good understanding of operations and are really good leaders at the same place. Um, so I hope they have that kind of similar kind of perception. And hopefully what I described in the articles is a way to get there. Yeah, I think it's well thought out. I'm encouraging our audience to avail themselves of both pieces. It's very interesting. I look forward to hearing more. Uh, you're doing great things outside the Air Force. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? Not particularly, other than just say thank you for the opportunity for me to to uh, kind of brag on scientists and engineers. As I kind of progressed through my career, especially towards the end when I was teaching, I got I got the opportunity to work with either students I had taught before that were now other physicists or taught the next kind of generation of physicists. So I was just really impressed with them, uh, their creativity, and I'm really excited to just highlight all the awesome things I. I think they're capable of. So, so thank you for this opportunity. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. And to those listening, thank you for joining us for episode three of Tailwinds, the Air and Space Operations Review podcast. Mm-hmm.